0: morning. Such a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. I'm so thrilled for this opportunity. Um, my wife and I and my kids, we've been, wow, it's a, yeah, we're stable here. That was a shaking there for a minute. My wife and my kids, we've been so thrilled for this opportunity, just so eager to come and spend some time with you. I have a gorgeous godly wife named Abby and four wonderful sons. God's been so gracious to us. Get a chance to hear more about our lives in the equip hour but we are very thankful for your hospitality for your kindness for the incredible reception we've received so far it's it's a deep privilege to be considered and evaluated for pastoral ministry in and among you at Palmetto Baptist Church it is my privilege and my honor thank you for giving me the chance to minister through the word this week i hope i've been praying i trust that it will be encouraging to your hearts these passages have provided rich truths for my heart and my mind so We've come this morning to hear from the true and living God through his word. So let's approach the throne of grace in our time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we do earnestly pray for your presence. We know that right now, amazingly, we are in the divine presence through the Son by the Spirit. And we are beckoned, we are summoned boldly to come to your throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And that's exactly why we've come. Father, more than anything, we need a vision today of your power, of your glory. We need to be sustained by your grace. We need to see you with eyes of faith, high and lifted up as the angels, as all of the angelic hosts and the seraphim can see right now, praising you with endless praise. To see, to get a glimpse of what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple. We pray that by your grace, through your word, you would minister to our hearts this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So throughout the course of this week, I would like to bring you a series of messages from the prophecies of Isaiah. And specifically, Lord willing, we're going to draw four messages from the book of the servant, Isaiah 40 through 55. And there are a number of waypoints that lead me to this text. You can see... A verse which I think is a key verse, a thematic verse, uh, not only broader for the entire prophecy of Isaiah, but especially for the book of the servant, the section we're going to drill down on, Isaiah 40 through 55. I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. I think a sweeping theme of the prophecy of Isaiah. He says something very tragic in Isaiah 63, that the people, because of their idolatry, rebellion, because they were conquered in exile, they had become a nation or a people over which uh, those like the Lord had never ruled. That though God had brought his people out of Egypt in the Exodus and he had made them a kingdom of priests to belong to God and a holy nation, he had made them his people Firstborn son, his prized possession among all the peoples of the earth. Tragically, throughout the the centuries, their cold hearts of rebellion had driven them away from God, which ended in a devastating exile. And Isaiah says with tears in his eyes, We have become like those among you whom you have never ruled. But the theme of Isaiah, the climactic message of Isaiah, is that once again, God is becoming king, and he's doing so in a very unlikely and unexpected twist. The book of the servant climaxes uh, with the one filled by the spirit, the Mashiach, which is translated into the word Christ, the anointed one who would one day come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves, rescuing us from all of the powers of darkness and death. That is what Isaiah is pointing us to. He's pointing us, to a view of grandeur of the glory and the majesty of God and what God had in store for his people, though in Isaiah's time, it seemed too good to be true. So we will study the book of the servant, Lord willing. There's a couple of things that really led me to these texts. One is in these passages, we get some of the most glorious and exalted descriptions of our God. What we need in worship more than anything is a view of God to see him with eyes of faith as he really is, conveyed in his word. Um, It's it's common in pop Christianity in American culture. People come to church to hear about tips and tricks for their lives. The latest self-help advice, how to live your most successful life now, to be a successful person, to be healthy and wealthy. Here's three tricks for having healthy relationships or a happy marriage. But more than that, so much more than that, we need a view of the grandeur and the glory of God and beholding his glory in the face of his Son to be transformed into his image. Isaiah gives some of these sweeping views in unparalleled ways. Also, uh, fascinatingly, these texts form the soil of the good news. For good reason, people have come to refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Uh, 700 years after Isaiah's life, when the first described disciples of Christ, and even Christ himself, pick up that phrase, good news, or the euangelion, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in his terms, it would be the Maseret, the, um, the good news, the one who proclaims good news. They are using Isaiah's word. So the gospel writers saw themselves as carrying forward an idea and a story that Isaiah began 700 years later. And the soil of that story, or its insepant form, is found in our passages in Isaiah 40 through50. Uh, 40 through 55, the good news of what God is doing in the world. Also, these chapters offer comfort and consolation for God's people. In incredible ways, these passage, passages warm the heart and show us a view of our great God as conquering king and also as tendered shepherd, stooping to care for his people and to gently nourish and lead and guide them. And then finally, Isaiah faced times of darkness and devastation, incredibly challenging times, really beyond what we could imagine, yet he was sustained by the glory, majesty, and grace of God, and we need the same message and the same sustenance that he received from God. So here's what I think he's trying to accomplish in our passage this morning. Could you please open your Bible to Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40, that's the passage that we're going to look at together today. And I want to give a brief illustration to try to help us understand his intent for this chapter and what he's trying to do. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to put the problems of God's people into perspective. He's trying to put your life and my life with the scope and complexities of all of its challenges and difficulties, the ups and the downs, he's putting things into perspective. Um, Parents, I'm sure you can identify with this or if you're somebody in management or you're responsible for the care and guidance of others, perhaps you've had a time when somebody under your authority or somebody under your care came with an urgent problem, and they were convinced that the thing they had to share with you uh, was so urgent that it demanded immediate action. Something has to be done now to solve this issue. Uh, Dads, you can probably acknowledge this. This happens every time you come home from work, right, at the end of the day. What's the next What's the next crisis going to be? As you show up at home, I have four young boys, so this is a constant experience. I'm especially nervous if the crisis has to do with the toilet and whatever was put into the toilet. You know, but they come with such an urgent problem, and you know, as the as the person in authority or the person with more perspective, uh, typically what you try to do is you try to help the person or the subordinate put things into perspective. You try to help them see things realistically and understand why their urgent need may not be such a crisis. And I think that's exactly what Isaiah is trying to do for God's people in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, before we get to the solution to the problem, we have to think deeply about the problem. These were devastating times in the history of God's people. So Isaiah is writing... um, At the turn of the century, he probably ministered somewhere between 740 and 689 BC, so roughly 700 years before Christ. He's ministering in the southern kingdom, in the region of the city of um, Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding cities. At this time in the history of God's people, the kingdom is divided, the northern and the southern kingdom. And he prophesies oracles of judgment. Um, It's tragically heartbreaking when you read the first 39 chapters, and that is the pervasive theme. God's people had apostatized into idolatry, rebellion, wickedness, corruption. They had forsaken the true and living God for the idols of the nations, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Listen to this shocking rebuke in Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So Isaiah identifies his contemporaries, God's people as that time, as wicked as those infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are there any more heinous names in Scripture? Cities that God destroyed with fire and brimstone, an instantaneous devastating destruction, fire and brimstone from heaven. That is what God's people had grown to be like. With hearts that were cold and far from God. Darkness, deep, deep darkness. And Isaiah prophesies that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to wipe out the northern kingdom. And this happens in 722 BC. The Assyrians come, they conquer God's people to the north, and they exile them far away. They're exiled out of the promised land, separated in a sense from the presence of God where he was worshipped in the promised land and in the temple. And then to make matters worse, in Isaiah 39, the passage before ours, uh, when King Hezekiah grew cold and indifferent towards God, God warned him that one day the king of Babylon, after his rule, was going to come and do the same that had been done to the northern kingdom. He was going to exile the southern kingdom. They were going to be conquered by the foreign power of Babylon and ripped out of their land. Uh, You remember Isaiah chapter 6, that famous passage in which Isaiah is commissioned He is told that he's gonna have a prophetic ministry until cities lie in waste and ruin because God's people did not have eyes to see and they didn't have hearts to hear the word of the living God. So truly, Isaiah lived in devastating and difficult times. And he answers two vitally important questions for us in this text. The first question is, does God even want to save his people? And the second question is, can God save his people? Has his arm grown short? Now, lest you think these are armchair questions, you know, you're familiar with the term armchair quarterback." So that pictures the guy who's eating popcorn and chips, watching football from his living room, calling all the shots, thinking he knows better than the players, it's very easy to armchair quarterback situations and to analyze these questions from a comfortable auditorium setting in 2023. But when you have the world's superpowers, Assyria breathing down your neck and the mighty Babylonians and the living God has prophesied devastation and destruction that most of his people will be judged and exiled. These are very difficult questions to grapple with. Does God even want to save his people? Has he removed his mercies forever? Have his mercies come to an end because of our putrid sin? And furthermore, can God save his people? Is he mighty to save, or have the gods of Assyria, Nishrach, and the god of Babylon, Marduk, outstripped the true and living God? These are questions that Isaiah grappled with in very personal and powerful ways, and I trust that his answers will minister our hearts this morning. Now, of course, these aren't just questions that Israel and Judah asked themselves Corporately in ancient history, these are questions you and I asked ourselves personally in everyday life. Does God care? Can God deliver? And like Israel, we have a tendency to take our eyes off God and fixate on our problems. And when we do this, of course, our problems loom large, insurmountable spiritual problems, physical problems, material and immaterial. And in light of the magnitude of our problems, Our resources are meager and limited. Our wisdom is confounded. Our understanding confused. And like Isaiah, we need to put our problems into perspective. And the only right way to do that is beholding your God. To see his majesty and glory in his word. So this is the one truth. The one idea of this message from Isaiah 40. It's this, very simple. Behold your God. And Isaiah gives us a sweeping view of his grandeur, his glory, his intimate care, and that will minister to our hearts today. So I need to give a structural comment about the sermon here, so to give you some hooks on which you can hang the message and follow along. I think Isaiah accomplishes his theme, his intent to show us the grandeur and the glory of God by giving us four visions of the Lord and truth about the Lord. The first is, he is the saving Lord. The second is, he is the sovereign Lord. And the third is, he is the sustaining Lord. And by way of those three visions and casting those three visions in powerful and potent ways, he reassures about God's tender care and his intimate knowledge of each of our lives. He cares for his people. Behold, your God. So first, he handles this vision, a vision of the saving Lord. And he paints that picture by way of four announcements, four heralds, or four cries. He's painting a picture of the Lord who one day will come to rescue his people. Uh, Before I read Isaiah 40, one through two, let me just make uh, two interpretive comments. First of all, in these first 11 verses where we receive these pronouncements of who God is and what God's going to do, it's easy to get turned around in the vision and we wonder, well, who is speaking and who is being commissioned to speak? So before we dig into the passage, let me just give my view as I understand it. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet of the Lord. That's that passage where he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And as a prophet, like all Old Testament prophets, he was responsible to stand in the council of the Lord, where God would meet with the heavenly host and proclaim the message of the Lord as delivered from the true and living God. That was the responsibility of the Old Testament prophets. He was commissioned to bring the message of the Lord to God's people. I think Isaiah 40 and what follows recapitulates those themes. And now the oracles of the Lord are entrusted to anyone who will hear the word of the Lord, receive it, and communicate this good news to God's people. Uh, one of the reoccurring themes in Isaiah 40 through 55 is that God's witnesses, God's people, should testify what the true and living God has foretold about the future and his saving action in the world. And that will we'll bear witness to all the pagans, all who worship idols, that there is one God one maker of heaven and earth. And he knows and he determines the future. And he's determined that one day, even he will call a Persian king named Cyrus around 539 AD to deliver his people out of exile. So this passage calls upon any one of the people of God who will hear the message of Isaiah, respond in faith and proclaim it far and wide, therefore demonstrating that there is a God in Israel uh, a God that trumps all of the false gods of the nations. So that's who's speaking and that's who's entrusted to speak. And I think one more comment here, as you deal with the prophecy of Isaiah, um, I think this is a good visual for understanding what Isaiah is talking about and what he's pointing forward to. And this is an original to me, this was another commentator, I believe, who explained it this way. Isaiah p- paints the, the scene of a mountain landscape. He shows us a vista or a silhouette, the grand scope of redemptive history and what the living God is doing in the world. And as he paints that scene, he describes different mountain peaks in the silhouette and we get this glorious and exalted vista. And that's what it's like when you approach the mountains. Maybe you've been in Denver and you've driven out to the mountains or some other mountain range. And as you look on from a distance, you see the silhouette and the landscape But you can't see the gaps between the individual peaks. You actually have to get up closer before you realize, wow, there's actually hundreds of of miles separating these individual peaks. I think that that's the landscape of Isaiah. There are times when Isaiah points forward to Cyrus, the Persian king, who's going to, 70 years after the captivity, rescue God's people from exile. There are times when he catapults even further forward into the coming of the servant king, and what he would do in Isaiah 53, being crushed for the sins of God's people. There are times when he catapults even further forward, discussing the millennial reign of this final David, this king in grandeur, that one day everyone will beat their weapons into plows and the wolf will lie down with the lamb. And there are times when he catapults even further forward to the eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth, when God will prepare a feast for all of his people, a feast and the richest wine, and they'll dwell in peace and security with the living God for all time. Isaiah paints that entire landscape for us, and there are times when he dips in to one part of redemptive history and gives us a magnified view or a closer look. Sometimes it's difficult to sort out which he is describing, but that's what he's looking at, and that's what he has to show us. So, without further ado... Isaiah chapter 40, we begin in verse 1. Remember, the first vision is of the saving Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Again, he paints this vision of the saving Lord by way of four climactic pronouncements. The first is an announcement of comfort. If you'd been reading the first 39 chapters in sequence, the words of the first words of verse 40 are arresting, probably more arresting than we can illustrate. But um, if you've driven a standard transmission vehicle, or this actually happened when I was driving through the mountains in my very flashy minivan the other day, but you know, if you're driving through the mountains and you try to punch it going up the mountain, what'll happen is your transmission will downshift and that throws your RPMs up into the 60,000 or the, 60, the 70,000 range and your engine revs really high, it's a hard shift, not a smooth shift. And that's the sense that we should get as we read these first words. Before it was judgment, devastation, and now it's a message of comfort and an earnest one. Comfort, my people. Comfort says your God. Notice the way God's people are described. They are once again my people, and I am your God. Previously, in the oracle of Isaiah, God had been using terms of divorce. These were no longer his people. These were pagans, idol worshipers, people of his wrath, destined for ruin and destruction. But once again, God steps in to reassure, now you are my people, the people of the true and living God. This um, speak kindly is an idiomatic phrase that literally leads speak to the heart. It's a very tender and affectionate image. And the message of comfort is summarized by way of these three subordinate statements, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hand for her sins. That her warfare is ended alludes to restoration after the Babylonian captivity. God's people will be rescued and saved though they're in exile that her iniquity is pardoned, shockingly, points forward to Isaiah 53 and what God will do through the servant, that he himself will be crushed for the sins of God's people that, so that they can be redeemed. And that she has received uh, from the Lord's hand double for all her sins does not signify they've received more judgment than they've deserved, but it probably means they've received the two-part or the bifold destruction that God foretold in Isaiah 51. God said there, Two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. The two two parts of God's punishment had been fully meted out against Israel. And now God was stepping in to bring comfort and consolation. Announcement of comfort. The next is an announcement of the Lord's coming. Look back at verse three. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Another mysterious voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This announcement pictures the Lord coming to his people out of the wilderness. One of the tragic results of exile and judgment was that God's glory, his Shekinah glory, or his dwelling with his people had departed from the temple, the most devastating thing that could happen to God's people. What makes us distinct and different from all the peoples of the earth? Is it not the presence of the Lord with us? That we are his people and that he is our God. Well, in their idolatry, His presence in the vision of Ezekiel rose up from the temple and left the temple by way of the east gate. But the good news of Isaiah is that God is coming back and he's coming through the wilderness and a messenger or a voice will be a herald preparing his way. Uh, This reaches a soaring climax in Isaiah 52 The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Before the Lord visits his people, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, a voice would cry out in the wilderness, preparing his way. That's what we're expectingly waiting for. And then these these four descriptions in verse 4, they metaphorically describe a journey that's unencumbered and made in haste. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. In other words, his visitation is swift and sure as certain, as certain as the unfading and unfailing word of the Lord. You're familiar with this idea of a journey. Uh, we drove here by way of I-75. The last thing you want to see as you get on I-75 is orange cones and brake lights, right? You want a journey that is swift and sure and certain and Such will be the coming of the Lord when this messenger arrives in the wilderness. Nothing will impede him. No obstacle stands in his way. And the result, amazingly, will be the worldwide manifestation of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. One day, all people everywhere will acknowledge the rule, the reign, the saving power of the true and living God. Uh, as the other text, this reaches another soaring climax in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but when you hear that passage, you should get goosebumps on the back of your neck because Paul picks up that passage and he applies it to Jesus of Nazareth saying that Jesus, in shocking terms, is Adonai. He is the Lord God Almighty, the true and living God, the God of the Old Testament. And to him, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear fidelity. This is made certain and sure by the word of the Lord. So the saving Lord, it's an announcement of comfort, an announcement of the Lord's coming, and it's an announcement of certainty. It will happen and nothing can stand in his way. Look at verse 6, Isaiah 46. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As he said in verse 5, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This prophetic oracle is certain and sure and firmly fixed and nothing will impede or stay the hand of the true and living God. One day he himself will come to visit his people bringing full and final salvation and it doesn't matter how the powers of Babylon, the powers of Assyria or the powers of Egypt rear their ugly head. No one can impede the true and living God. Nothing can stand in his way. This poetry, this beautiful and rich poetry, very iconic poetry, obviously contrasts the frailty, the transience of humanity. We are like grass, or we're like the flower of the field. One day, maybe blooming in beauty and apparent success, but poof, the next day, gone with the wind. But the word of the Lord is like an ever fixed boulder, it's like granite bedrock. It never changes, it never moves. Again maybe a very comfortable uh, benign easy to believe idea sitting in the comfort of our auditorium or gymnasium should i say on, you know in the in 2023 but for god's people exiled from babylon ripped out of their land threatened by the superpowers of the world something much more difficult to believe but shocking good news this this prophecy of god's coming salvation is as sure as the existence of the true and the living God. So the final announcement that paints the vision of the saving Lord is an announcement announcement of commission. And here we are invited to get in on the fun and to testify to what the Lord will do in his mighty acts of salvation. Look at verses nine through 11. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This conveys a very powerful yet tender image of our God as warrior And as shepherd, gently, tenderly leading those who are with young. And this time, the heralds or those entrusted with the proclamation are invited to join in. Jerusalem, the city of God, where God had forever put his name through his dwelling in the temple. The surrounding cities of Judah in centrifugal force are encouraged and summoned to announce the good news. Get you up on a high mountain, proclaim, lift up your voice. Behold, your God comes with might and power and strength to save you. What is the good news according to Isaiah? The good news is that Yahweh himself is coming to save his people. Behold your God. He doesn't delegate this task to another person or program. He comes himself with might and his arm ruling for him. This becomes another very important theme throughout the book of the servant. We learn that the arm of the Lord is actually a person. He is the servant of the Lord, that the Lord bars his holy arm in sending his servant, one filled with his spirit who will obey all of his will and accomplish all of his purposes, suffering for the sins of God's people, yet eternally rising in victory. That statement, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, gives us the image of a warrior. He's coming to conquer and to share the spoil with his own. And then he picks up, he goes from a more rough, gruff image of the warrior to the tender image of the shepherd. He's actually gently leading those who are with young. He takes personal and intimate knowledge of their needs and like a good shepherd, he will never drive them too hard. This overall, these first 11 verses are the pronouncement, this grand vision of the saving Lord. Isaiah projected forward and this is where we're taking time. Take a deep breath. We all just took a deep plunge. Now, Let's take a breath and reflect on what we've learned so far in the vision of the saving God. Isaiah projected forward to a time when a voice would cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for his feet. Of course, you recognize those iconic words. Those are the words that open each of the gospel accounts, the accounts of the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, that message carried forward. From the very important pillars that Isaiah set in place. The name of this man was John the Baptist. And he appeared in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Making, proclaiming a message of repentance. That God was coming in might. He was bearing his holy arm. And his arm would rule for him. He comes as a warrior shepherd to gently tend his young. He comes as the good shepherd to lay his life down for his sheep. This is the grand and climactic good news. And indeed, it is good news about the saving Lord. The next vision that Isaiah has for us is a vision of the sovereign Lord. So he's answered the first question for us. Does God even want to save his people? Have our iniquities and our transgressions separated us, cut us off from the tender mercies of God forever? The answer is an overwhelming, emphatic no. One day, God will enter human history for himself and do what we could never do. He'll suffer for our sins. He'll bring eternal hope and righteousness. He'll make many to be accounted righteous, as Isaiah 53 says. Our sins, in a sense, can never separate us from God because God comes as the warrior shepherd. He'll deal with this problem himself. Now we address the second question. Is God able to save his people? Is this all too good to be true? Have the foreign powers, the dark powers of the pagans, outstripped the power of the one God, maker of heaven and earth? Is Yahweh just a territorial deity like Nishrak or Marduk? Is his power restricted to the land of Palestine? Can God's people experience his power in exile in Babylon? And the answer is, absolutely. So in this next scene, here's another structural comment to help you follow the way the passage develops. What Isaiah does is he paints us two portraits of God that advance and develop the same theme in the same way. So he's going to essentially write two parallel poems for us that give us a vision of this grand sovereign God over all the powers of the world, all the foreign powers. Um, First, he is God the creator then he is God the ruler, he is God the incomparable, and idols are nothing. So two movements that advance in the same way. God the creator, God the ruler, God is incomparable, and idols are nothing. If you're trying to picture how the center of the chapter develops, it's like one of those Russian dolls. You ever seen those fascinating dolls? So you open the doll, and there's an identical doll, just slightly smaller on the inside. These are two Russian dolls conveying the same message about the sovereign Lord and fascinatingly, in the same way. So let's pick it up uh, with the first movement. Uh, We'll read verse 12 through verses 20. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. He casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And like I said, he's giving us a vision of the sovereign Lord in four movements. First of all, God is the creator. You notice the the rhetorical force and power of these questions who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand who marks off the heavens with a span obviously these questions are so powerful because God is so vast and immense we have no unit of measure or metric for these questions how are you going to measure all of the waters contained in the earth by gallons how many gallons is that How are you going to measure the scope and the vastness of the heavens that God simply put in place like a pup tent? You stretch out a measuring tape? The obvious point is there was no one who knows and there is no one who can apart from the one God. His resources are infinite. His immensity knows no bounds. The universe itself cannot contain him. He is Lord, the creator God. So after these questions about creation, uh, we hear questions about God's wisdom. God's wisdom is unsearchable and vast. The concept of justice and what's right and the enforcement of what's right belongs to the living God and to God alone. And this is going to become very important for a question peppered at the Lord by his people at the end of the chapter. It's impossible for God to miscarry justice. He is justice itself and what he determines is right. The exile of Assyria, the exile of Babylon, judgment against God's people and later restoration. God needs no counsel or advice. God has no actual real questions or areas of knowledge that aren't filled in. Can you imagine that? I mean, we're bristling with questions. There are so many things. There's an infinite amount of things that I don't know. And that's never true for the living God. He receives advice. Nobody is his counselor. This is probably a polemical shot at the god Marduk, who in the Babylonian account of a creation, the Enuma Elish, Marduk, he took counsel with other divinities in his so-called creation of the world, conquering the powers of chaos and darkness. God needs no counselor. He is completely unique and distinct from us and all the world that he's made. And then the next overture celebrates his rule. The nation's, are like nothing in the scope of the infinite God. So the image is like a bucket that's drawn from the well with a drop spilling back into the well. All the nations are like that inconsequential, insignificant drop. They are as nothing as it relates to his plans, his purposes, his salvation. Nothing can stay his hand, not the world's superpowers, not the foreign pagan gods, no idol, and no one else says they're like dust on the scales. And this is a very powerful image. You can picture a balancing scale in which weights are placed on the other side and the thing being measured is on the other pan. Obviously, the dust on the scales is completely insignificant. It doesn't tip the scale. It's inconsequential. So are all the nations in the scope of who God is and what he's purposing to do. Doesn't even tip the scale. He is in control over all of the powers of the earth. Uh, Verse 16 comments on God's uh, magnitude, his immensity, not all of the timbers in Lebanon, which was famous in the ancient Near East for its cedars, its towering cedars, not all of the timbers or all of the animals would amount to an appropriate sacrifice for the one great God. In our idolatry, in our paganhood, we tend to think that God, God depends on us in some way, that he needs us to accomplish something for his purposes. But God needs nothing from us. And in fact, He will supply his own sacrifice in Isaiah 53. And he moves into statements about God's incomparability. He's completely transcendent. You can't actually compare anything with God to come up with his likeness. He outstrips um, any point of comparison or anything else. And then in the last part of that, verses 19 and 20, Um, he reveals the folly of idolatry. Isaiah loves to use sarcasm and satire. Lord willing, we'll look at that on Wednesday night. It's so silly to think that with our hands, we could make God, choosing wood that won't rot, fastening the idol in its place so it doesn't topple. God made us. It's impossible for us to ever conceive to think that we could make him. Such a silly notion. Uh, Moving on, Isaiah recapitulates the same themes. Look at verses 21 through 26. Remember, uh, he is Lord of creation. He is Lord of the rulers of the earth. He's incomparable and idols are nothing. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one of them is missing. He's recapitulating the same ideas, carrying forward that message with powerful and poetic images. And there's just one that I want to drill down on before we run to the end of the message and the chapter. Uh, Notice what he's talking about in verses 25 and 26. He directs the reader, or the one listening to this pronouncement, to lift one's eyes to the heavenly host and the stars. It was common in the ancient Near East, especially in Babylon, to worship the stars, and to identify the stars as the gods. And here Isaiah is making another important polemic against the pagan gods of all the nations. The stars aren't gods. The stars are luminaries that the true and living God set in space himself on day four of the creation week. And he calls out their hosts by number, like a commander. When God says, turn up, All of the stars turn up in their rightful place and not one of them is missing. That's the power and the rule of the true and living God. No one and nothing can stay his hand. He's completely incomparable. All right, so remember, he is the saving Lord. He is the sovereign Lord. And finally, he's the sustaining Lord. And we see this in the last part of the passage. Look now at the end of the chapter, please. Verses 27 through 31. And here, Isaiah gets back around to the question, does God even want to save his people? Remember, it was, does he want to save them? Yes, they're his people. He's their God. Can he save them? Of course he can. He holds the waters in the palm of his hand. He marks off the heavens with a span. He calls out the host by number. Now back to the question, well, does he even want to in the first place? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creators of the end of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He is the sustaining God and the one who waits, the one who watches for him and waits, even though the darkness grows deep. That one will miraculously, incredibly be sustained by the supernatural power of God. They will shine out the clearer like the darkness deepens and stars are meant for shining so also the one who trusts in this sustaining God. Uh, the last part of this passage, the sustaining God, develops in two parts. First of all, God sees and knows the plight of his people. And then finally, God will help and sustain. Foolishly, in a silly way, God's people were asking the question, "My way," or they were asserting, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Of course that's not true. It's impossible for God to miscarry justice. It's impossible for God not to notice you. I'm following this train of thought comes from a commentator who is discussing the passage, but we tend to think God is too big to know about me or care about me. And the real answer is God is too big to not know about me and care about me. When he calls, the stars turn up and they report for duty. He knows every detail about your life. Remember, he is that warrior shepherd who gently leads those who are with young, who have acute sensitive needs. He takes account for every one of them and the scope of his plan and his purpose, you can never measure. His resources are limitless. His power, his love are limitless. So this truly is a message of comfort. Again, he reassures them. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of Israel He tends his people and he never forgets and he always knows. Nothing escapes his notice, not even the most distant star. So how foolish it is to think that God has forgotten or God has forsaken. And then finally, there is an incredible reassurance that God will help. The image is like a soaring bird that stretches out its wings and soars effortlessly. And the passage promises those who wait on the Lord... Thus, who trust in him, his saving power, his strength, his love, and his purpose, they will be like an eagle soaring, stretching out one's wings, soaring effortlessly, being sustained by the truth of the living God. And remember, these were very profound things for Isaiah to say to people in exile under destruction and ruin. This is a call of faith. It's a call that no matter what the circumstances of your life are, Your God sees and knows. Your God is the warrior shepherd who will gently lead you, nurture you, care for you. And by his grace, for his glory, you will reach journey's end. All of his good purposes will be fulfilled in your life. You'll be sustained by his grace, all for his glory. This is the vision and the grandeur of God. So God's people this morning, I invite you in Isaiah 40 to behold your God. Let's pray.